Arnab's thoughts on the US handling of COVID crisis, cleaning up history and why nepotism isn't really nepotism. Coming right up. Hi and welcome to episode 89 of Attention Plus with Arnab Ray. I am Vikram Mohan. Also this week on other podcasts from Forspire, Bin John had four Hindi movies featuring our childhood crushes. That's a little embarrassing though. And uh, WhatsApp Geeks covers uh, what else but Apple's announcements in the WWDC. You can find both of them at forspire.net. That's the number 4, S-P-I-R-E dot net. Uh, we also had a couple of people writing in asking if uh, they wanted to download the Attention Plus podcast as an MP3 and you can do that as well at uh, forspire.net. You have a share icon and that will give you an option to download it and listen offline. Anyway, we were off for a couple of weeks, so I'm happy to welcome back your host, Arnab. Hey, Arnab. Hello, Vikram. So how's, so as, as, as those of you, some of you may or may not know, the first week I took it off and the second week there was a fire in, in, oh, in yeah. Vikram's house. So, so I just wanted to ask him, um, how's everything and where are we on the path of resolution? I mean, have you guys moved in? Yeah, yeah, we, we moved in, uh, uh, you know, mid of last week. And last night was very interesting because it was a Saturday night last week when the entire fire happened and all of us were standing, uh, you know, on the roads uh, since we were ev- evacuated. So in, in a week, in fact, a uh, lot of good things have happened. And like I put that on, on my tweet as a thread. It's a it's my pinned uh, tweet. And typical in, in Indian fashion, uh, of course, now, uh, you know, since it was kind of a wake-up call, you now we've got a fire. We didn't, uh, so we had only water-based, uh, uh, you know, fire alarms and uh, the sprinklers, which you obviously can't do when, when there's an electrical fire. So now we are we are prepared ourselves for that. We have uh, some sort of system for electrical fire. And also good to see that, you know, at least this is going to result in uh, better more safety and uh, even the apartments around us have inquired to find out how they can also uh, do this so it's, yeah it's been a week we still don't have complete power so hmm. i'm hoping that happens at least in the next couple of days so is is the smoke been ejected from your house completely I mean, the the lift lobby still smells of smoke and apparently till it uh, uh, till we get it whitewashed and painted again that that smell is going to be there Okay. It's also a good reminder for us uh, to to start fixing things. So I, I'm not in a hurry to get rid of that smell because it, it's kind of driving people to uh, ensure uh, you know things are safe. All right. Anyway, it feels longer than two weeks, and uh, a lot has happened, isn't it? A lot has happened in these two weeks. It is this normally does, but this is these two weeks have been uh, specially event worthy. Um, so. Let's start off with uh, let's start off with the let's just, let's start off with the news that's most relevant to me because ultimately it's my podcast and so <laughs> if there's anything which is threatening my life um, that gets top billing and what's threatening me right now um, is uh, the absolute fail absolute collapse of uh, of any kind of uh, COVID fighting infrastructure in general in the US. And particularly in Los Angeles County, where I live. So if you've been looking at the COVID numbers, uh, global COVID numbers, you would find that 
um, COVID has been reasonably constrained, uh, contained in places like Italy and UK and Germany, which, which saw a huge surge a few months ago. And that there does seem to be some kind of, I wouldn't say total uh, annihilation of COVID. That's obviously not going to go away, but some kind of steady state um, acceptance of, hey, it's going to be this amount of uh, infections and these amounts of death. They've kind of flatlined. I guess the flattening of the curve never meant that the curve would converge to X is equal to zero. That was never the expectation. And while obviously one cannot believe anything that comes out of China or Donald Trump's mouth, they're both similar in terms of uh, their regard for the truth. It's also true. And China, again, has it easy because it is a totalitarian state. Um, it can constrain outbreaks much easier than democratic societies where you can't force people to stay inside just by pointing a gun at them, which is an which is a privilege that the Chinese government has. The first uh, episode that I ever did on COVID, I said that this is the kind of situation where an authoritarian regime is likely to do better than a democratic regime because of the because this is a this is a fallback to a more primitive time when this was a very primitive kind of attack on humanity disease. Uh, at a time when you need strong government, you do, you can't explain to people why, because people, <laughs> honestly, as a you know, most people are too stupid to get it. So you need to say, okay, wait, we're doing this for your own good. Look at the gun and stay inside. Um, and so China is a, but again, I can't believe anything that comes out of China, of course. But other countries which which don't have that, even democracies, but with 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 flourishing. Uh, you know, Europe has, is much more, I would say, socialist than, uh, than the U.S. It's also true that they have uh, constrained boundaries. So this is something which if you have a large country like the U.S. or India, uh, it's, it's much more difficult to constrain than if you have a small country like New Zealand, for instance, which actually has water around it, which makes it even better. But even with Europe, even in Europe with, uh, with, with small countries with robust healthcare systems, and large public healthcare systems and large public support. So they have much higher rates of taxation. They're socialist. So it allows people. Um, and, and another thing is that the culture of Europe is that, you know, this is, this is a place which mo- not more than 100 years ago had two world wars. So this is a place which understands, you know, existential crisis and how it has to and how your personal behavior has to be modified. This is not something which they have never experienced. Of course, these people haven't experienced, but there is some sort of generational memory of uh, curtailing individual liberties in the face, spontaneously curtailing individual liberties in the face of an existential threat. And this is something which the U.S. has never, ever experienced on its homeland. No matter how many, how many times America likes to think that it's under attack, it's actually never been under attack in its own in history. It's never been under attack, except this time. I mean, whenever America has lost their lives, it is they've lost it by fighting in some other theater where, you know, either they have died in Europe fighting World War II or they've died in Vietnam or they've died in Iraq. They've gone someplace else to die. And there they have died. But uh, it's not that their own country was under ever under attack. It never was. They always had the option of coming back and reducing the number of deaths to zero. That option was always there for them. This is the first time in their entire history that that option is no longer there. Of course, they had the civil war, but that's just a really long time ago. And even there, 
it was a more conventional kind of enemy there was this is something which the american the american nation is just not and we see that we see that right now of course the problem is exacerbated by having a and having a you know a president like donald trump having an you know an an orange gargoyle leading the, the the this country at this point of time is perhaps you know you can say that in a democracy america brought this on themselves they thought that having a reality tv president would be fun well this is why you don't have a, a reality tv president precisely because of this reason and right now in but then you would say but los angeles is uh, well uh, california is a, is is a democratic deeply democratic state why why uh, why are the numbers surging in california and that's a very good question but uh, the the reason for that again is that again well i forgot to give some context we've had an alarming increase in the number of covid positive cases which even if you count that more people are being tested the percentage of people who are being tested who are coming covid positive has increased um and this this uh, has shot, this has been most marked in states like california florida texas and arizona these four states are seeing a uh, huge huge boom i use the word boom in a negative sense here of uh, positive covid cases um buzzfeed recently did um an article of course buzzfeed given its its non-existent journalistic credentials said that the recent uh, protests that happened um against uh, police and and for black lives matters that had nothing to do with uh, the surge of case, the surge with with the coronavirus surge and they you know co- looked at different cities where there had been they said there was no significant increase and places where there hadn't been uh you know widespread protests like in republican states like florida and texas they said look at how the numbers have increased throughout the article they absolutely forgot california totally there was no mention of california at all in that article because their entire hypothesis is upended by california and especially with los angeles where there were widespread protests and now there is a huge surge in terms of uh, covid positive cases the problem in california also is that even though california is a blue state there are significant portions of this uh, state which are very very deeply republican and deeply believe that uh, the government has no rights so this is this is again this this kind of pig headedness for the want of a better word is really what's behind you know the second amendment and the right to bear guns even though there is no logical reason why people should have ak47s in america it is it is set, it is spun and many people actually believe that this is a fundamental right that is given to them by god who blesses the us that's the american exceptionalism that only god stands above us and above nobody else and that the right to bear arms is a almost a god given right, right. um Uh, that they have in, in even even though you can see that the right to bear arms you know causes so much damage to their schools causes so much violence even though the data even the fact that you know death that they might die of it even because of the regular shootings nothing nothing convinces them that they have to let go of their guns no amount of data no amount of pointing at other countries no amount of anything which goes by the name of logic will convince them that they need to stop having guns that it doesn't bring them any security most people are killed by intruders who take their guns and kill them so it's not even true that having a gun in your home will protect you against an intruder when and if that happens 
most people who have guns are not actually cannot use the guns when in, in an actual situation <laughs> so um, and they're more likely the other guy is more likely to take their gun and shoot them and in that situation so there is no reason why there's no logical reason why people should have guns but they still do and not one politician even the most liberal democrat politicians in except of one guy like beto rourke and he didn't say all guns he said some guns and then he totally his whole campaign imploded even in a very very liberal uh, presidential climate as it is right now uh, for saying that he opposes all guns um, so this is something which is almost a stance that no american politician even though it's so so logical uh, can take in this country because they believe that these are certain god given rights to them and one of their god given rights is the right to go out and do whatever they want so on one hand there is this um strong uh, you would see trump tweeting law and order there's no tweet other the, the, only the tweet says law and order in caps in in all caps <laughs> in all caps sometimes if out of no context he just shouts law and order um and so on one hand this 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 these trumpian maniacs they they, they love and fetishize this law and order but on the other hand um they want limitations on what the law and order should be as it comes to their own behavior so they're perfectly fine when the law and order is restricting other people's behavior they don't want law and order restricting their behavior and so you have there's this almost viral clip and i had uh, tweeted two screenshots of this lady saying that uh, you know the reason why she doesn't want to wear masks is because <laughs> she also doesn't wear underwear which reminded immediately reminded me of bulla of gunda Say like, this is it. This is this is what he was saying at that point of time. Nobody understood what he was trying to say. Rakta hu me khulla. That was being. I don't wear a mask. So um, so this is the level at which and you know this lady is you know it sounds funny and it's it's pathetic actually because she's not the only one who's saying it. If you, if you look go through that video, there are many people who come and say this is a sin against God. Blah blah. So you find you can see why in America the number of coronavirus cases is going up. Obviously there are a lot of these people, and as I was listening to the news this. the surge of cases is driven by young people who are getting that's why the number of deaths haven't been that much as of yet but the num- and and that's and, and that's not because it's a good thing uh, the number of deaths is going to trail the surge in cases so people first get infected then they die after two weeks so you will see the surge in deaths two weeks from now so it's just because you with the surge the deaths count that you see today is really the effect of what happened two or three weeks before so i saw some of some of the some of the dunces on fox saying oh but the number of deaths are so low yeah because that's 3 weeks ago what you what you're looking at the effect of what it was 3 weeks ago wait for 3 more weeks and now then you'll see the the deaths going up because of this because a certain percentage of people who fall sick who get this number will die there is there is no two ways about it and as we increasingly see for those of you who are following the medical news yes pre existing conditions yes there are all of these things that make people more likely to die but there are also other many things that people are now discovering that are present in even young people that makes them more likely to die for instance if you have the blood group a i don't know if you know that so people with blood group a show a much a really high percentage of people who die from covid have blood group a so people still haven't understood what are the specific risk factors so blood group a has got nothing to do with your age so the people haven't yet understood what are the specific risk factors um and actually the number of people dying 
in the age group 65 plus and getting infected has gone down why because people that age have realized you know what this entails so they're not going out the people who are going out are the young ones the 18 to 45 group which has which thinks because they haven't done the study of the signs that they think that they are okay maybe all fall sick but you know who cares it's just a flu it's not i had tweeted a link um that was published in the science section of sf gate which was a nurse who looked at like people who have recovered the chest x-rays right yes the chest x-rays i mean if you if you get covid you're going to live with this for the rest of your life i mean this is okay you might not die at that point of time but you will die sooner because of the damage it wreaks on your body and that has got nothing to do with age so people haven't understood what are the they, they, people are struggling so what is about having blood group a that makes you so likely to die we don't know yet so what we have right now are some very preliminary preliminary things you know people who have high blood sugar people who have uh, you know who have um, high blood pressure people who have asthmatic but these might not actually be the reason there could be something which is much more fundamental that fundamental thing might be that people who have that are more likely to be diabetic that could be the case but that is not the first order of causes most probably that is causing uh, amounts of death and the amounts of permanent damage that some people some very healthy people i read somewhere that there was somebody who was a college level athlete and we've heard these stories at 20 years old gets covid dies in a week total organ failure college level athlete guy fit you know fit body fat percentage less than 10 you know that kind of a guy 20 one week he's dead from from covid he just goes out catches covid mild symptoms and initially thinks it's okay and then boom it just just takes over in organ failure so there is and, and people don't realize it or they think with trump and this is the this is the danger of trump is that trump has created a culture in which if you don't like something you can just say it's fake news this 20 year old guy dying fake news this thing never happened so you ha- always have this justification of throwing out whatever contradicts your world view as fake news and this is again made you know for people for people like us who stay and who try to obey all the rules um this is in staying in the us is especially in a place like los angeles where you have it is an ideal place for this virus because there's a lot of people in a very small area you know density is very important because again it's you're more likely to get in contact with people if you're in you know this place rather than if you're in omaha right it's less likely that somebody will come in your and and right now people still haven't the thing about covid is that the signs on covid is still extremely extremely inexact uh, a few weeks ago somebody from um, world health organization came out and said that asymptomatic people don't uh, cause uh, covid right right yeah there was an immediate backlash as to what the f- and if that is true why did we shut the whole country down and then what she said was again i i'm i'm into the first time i read it she actually said that second she kind of obviously realized what that that the bomb she had thrown over she kind of said no what we're trying to say is that the chances of you getting covid from somebody who is asymptomatic has been shown to be less so again the what i'm trying to say is that nobody really knows even now 
um, how exactly this disease works. It's so mysterious. It's so beyond what anybody in this world has seen before in terms of the way it propagates, in the terms of the way it attacks your body, and the and how it can be sometimes so so benign that you know you don't even feel it. And sometimes a healthy guy drops dead within a week. You know, these kinds of this kind of variation. What is it about? So right now the thing is, you know, don't fuck around with this. I have seen I've seen people right outside going out, and they they think. And I, I, again, there's there's stupid people all around. These people just think because of this. Oh, I'm I'm not over sixty five. You know, I don't have any pre existing conditions. I'm safe. Guess what? You have no idea whether you are or not. Second item for today is that in the U.S. with the with the recent surge in protests, um, Black Lives Matters. This has come to one of you know, they're now pulling down statues. So they in D.C. there was a struggle to pull down the statue of one of their presidents, Woodrow Wilson. Um, Harvard decided to rename their School of Public Policy. Mm-hmm. Took out Woodrow Wilson's name. Um, there's even a, uh, there was even an attempt to destroy a statue of Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln in Washington DC today. Wow. Um they're changing the name of John Wayne Airport uh who's was a movie star and again Yeah, was, uh, what was that about? I mean John Wayne as far as I know cowboy movies beyond yeah, that yeah, I mean, so, in any politics uh, involved there. So John Wayne John Wayne was a racist. Okay. So you, in in the sense that I mean, you know, at that age I mean uh, in in that era I mean compared to today's standards pretty yeah. much everyone would be right? Exactly. So in, in those days, everybody, again, that's, that's, that's one of the big problems that, that people are nowadays in this cancel culture, people are compared with the standards of today. You cannot compare a person who lived 50 years ago with the standards of today. Much of the things that we say today, 50 years down the road, all of us will be something. If tomorrow, uh, you know, 50 years down the road, everybody becomes vegan, because the world can no longer support a, a non-vegetarian lifestyle, they will call, you know, us who tweeted about having chicken and chicken biryani, mutton biryani, <laughs> all the savages. Right. They'll say take down Arnabra's name from. I mean, my name won't be anywhere, of course, but even they'll take it up from the books that I've written. They take down his freaking name. He said mutton biryani. He's glorified eating of goats and stuff. I mean, what kind of you know evil monster was he? he well, yes, I was. I am an evil monster. I have eaten many goats. And the, the thing is, again, I, I can understand looking forward. I, I do understand as an animal lover myself that there is a, there's a certain, certain level of hypocrisy in my stance of being an animal lover as well as enjoying uh, you know, the carcasses of certain animals, but being very empathetic to certain other animals like dogs, for instance. I, I do recognize that there is some amount of arbitrariness here. And I do understand that, you know, 50 years, 100 years down the line, this could be considered to be extremely, extremely repugnant. Um, but that, that's the thing. You cannot, you cannot judge people who, I, you cannot judge people who have been dead for decades by the standards of today. And obviously you have to look at what is it that they said or did. Of course, the, the act has matters. And again, if you want to rename John, if you want to take out John Wayne's name, then again, what is what is that line? And and for me, of course, there's two things. One is while while quote unquote liberals, and of course the liberals here don't care for India, but our liberals in India obviously care for the US because whatever happens there has to be reflected there too. 
day whenever we want to rename you know aurangzeb road there will be bloody murder even the aurangzeb you know there will be, be two things firstly people will say that that's that then that's that and that's the terrible part that aurangzeb was actually a good person that oh there was this time and then the logic would be oh there was this time that he met this hindu guy and he didn't kill him so he was a good guy um so you know he wasn't a good guy on the other hand he was you know he should be judged by the standards of his day there are two distinct things firstly yes yeah, sure he sure he was a he, he was a bloodthirsty killer uh, of non muslims that's true was that unique in those days no it wasn't it was pretty standard so i'm not going to lionize aurangzeb so and i'm not going to try to whitewash his crimes either but i'm also not going to rename a sit a, a road which is called aurangzeb road because of that because for me my principle is you cannot erase history your history is there you have to accept it the main thing of ex- of accepting history is that you hold that person accountable but you don't hold people who share traits with that person accountable for his or her acts that is something which you do not do because the unit of culpability is an individual if you want to take again it depends on what exactly he or she did um if there was statues of hitler for instance in berlin would would be people want to keep that up well there was perhaps not so again there is there is no hard and fast rule but in general the further something recedes away into history the less advisable it is to go ahead and try to change it you know some things cannot be undone um that's why for me taking down statues because at what point of time will you stop are we not going to have any statues because tomorrow native american indians could ask for every statue of everybody in america to be taken down because they're all complicit in the genocide of native americans so at what point of time will you stop will we stop having any kind of statue for anybody whatsoever so Again, my point is that this is a diversion. This is there are lots of diversions going on. One and another one is, of course, you know, defund the police. In America, there is now a, a slogan which I don't know if you've heard of it. It's 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 called defund the police. Right. It basically, means take away the money for the police. Now, the people who started defund the police, some people say, no, defund the police doesn't mean that we are saying abolish the police force. you're just saying that um, some of the things that the police are funded for we should make sure that they are not funded to do it that the funding goes to other places this is a very rational stance i believe because if you look at the police force in the us the police force are um, are asked to do you know are asked to restrain people suffering from mental health and uh, from uh, uh, drug use these are things which they are not trained to do so yes there should be social workers and and some of the some of the police precincts who because they're very well funded have things like tanks they have tanks police officials have tanks they have advanced military gear and of course that costs money so if defunding the police means not giving not militarizing the police i am absolutely 100% for that um there is no reason why uh, a police force uh, needs to have military level ammunition they're not they and they're not trained they're also not trained to be able to handle that they just do it because it makes them feel macho and they have money so let's just get a tank 
um, and you know, in, in any practical situation, in an urban situation, are you going to actually use a tank on your own people? And do you know what what stage you have reached to be starting using that tank? So it's again something which you really cannot use. It's just a waste of money. So if that if defund the police means that, I'm all for it. But some people who are part of the defund the police have actually said no. By defund the police, we actually do mean abolish the police. We actually mean what we mean that take the literal meaning of the word. That is, and for me, that is. You know that is a problem, of course. <laughs> what is going to happen is, you know, the purge. Is it, yes, it's so obvious for me to say what is going to happen. But so, so even even those people will say that no, it's not that we are saying that there will be no law enforcement, but law enforcement has to be done in a in a kind way. You know, it, it, there's lack of specifics on that. But this actually comes from classic Marxist theory. But those of you who have been unfortunate enough to read Marxism, which as I have. This state of no police is actually the final state of Marxism that Karl Marx prophesied. Um, it's a state which he calls the state shall wither away, which means that with total income equalization and everybody having the equality of outcomes, there will be no crime. Of course, this is a very naive and obviously obviously flawed final state and and the main reason is if you've ever looked at any communist state you'll find that the biggest role there has been of the police because there is no way that you can force people to give up their money to somebody else without the police there is no way you can enforce this equalization of outcomes without a police so if you need the police to get there you bloody well need the police to maintain it. That's why every communist country in this world has had the biggest police apparatus. So this is, this is again, uh, a university professor, communist, utopian idea, which actually has never happened because fundamentally it cannot. The steady state that Marxists want the world to go to is an absolutely unsustainable state on based on human behavior and based on human history that can never happen without the presence of police a police will have to be present there even more to make sure and that's exactly what has happened all the time so defund the police that extreme is obviously comes straight from marxist uh, let's say canon and um, it is absolutely impractical but in, unfortunately in the us many people are are, are saying that but there has been, and this is this is germane for even my Indian audience who is who is are not talking about America all, all podcast after coming back for two weeks. But today, I I, I saw this uh, I, I saw this story, which is a vastly disturbing story of of this police brutality in Tamil Nadu, where you had oh, yes. uh, where you had a father and a son who were picked up for essentially not giving a free mobile phone to the police cop there. And were sodomized. Both of them were sodomized and uh, subject to like the, the most brutal of humiliation for days on end, and, and and they were killed. And again, this comes from the immunity. So for me, police reform means taking away the immunity that police have from, um, and this is true both in the U.S. as well as in India, is that the immunity that is given for people in uniform. This is the problem. This is why horrific crimes, crimes like these happen. And this is true in the US and this is true in India is that whenever you give somebody, this is not 
a problem with one person and two persons is often shown to be a problem of one bad apple or two bad apples. No, as experiments have proved that famous prisoner experiment where I don't know if you've heard of this, but there was a famous Stanford prisoner experiment where they basically, um, you know, they, it was a simulated experiment where some people were made into cops, uh, were given like as if they were the jailers and some people were made prisoners and they were observed. And even though the people who were made jailers were randomly chosen, it found that if they found that there was in all of them, a certain amount of cruelty started manifesting itself. And this manifestation is not because of something internal to those people. It is because of the uniform that's given to them and that power. So it is that power, which that power that I can be, I can do whatever I want without any kind of retribution. That itself is the corrupting influence. And that is what causes police brutality. So, you know, punishing those two guys, okay, sure, it will, it, but it won't solve the problem. The problem is not, you know, some part of it is definitely defunding the police in the US. That's not true in India at all. I don't think that our police in India are excessively funded. Exactly the opposite, I would say in India, they're underfunded, which is why they're not trained often. And they, they it, it's a totally different problem in India. But one thing that, that connects both of them is, is the is the impune is is the authority that they get? You know, this this guy has been I've forgotten what his name was. The the, the the two the two policemen who have been accused of this horrific crime. I mean, they have, this is not the this is not the first time they have done this. There are several there have been several complaints against their you know unbridled exercise of power. And one thing, and since you know, for those of you who know me, you know how how obsessed I am with popular culture, and, and one reason is. We have, you know, this this might not be a primary reason, but we have popular culture which glorifies uh, police who don't listen to the law, who just go ahead and just beat up the bad guys. Of course, in 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 the in the movies, it's always the bad guys who are getting beaten up by the shinghams. But obviously, the bad guy um, is something which is decided in this case in real life by the cop. And the, if if the bad guy is somebody who didn't give him a free cell phone, then that guy is the bad guy, and he's shingham. So, so this this glorification of of police excesses, which unfortunately is 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 a part and parcel of of Indian popular entertainment as well as American popular entertainment, I believe does make a part in normalizing some of these acts of police violence. As long as it's not on us, we we, we are absolutely will be will be terribly shocked and totally distraught if they do it to us. But when it's done to other people, of course, this is you know what else are they going to do? Human rights wallahs and all such stuff. But it's and unless it happens to you, you will not realize it. But the fact is that both in US and India, we have these we have these cases which are kind of piling up very close together, and they're very similar to each other. Is that that again with with respect to George Floyd, the fact that these guys could do it in front of a camera? I mean, these guys were not even trying to hide it. They knew, you know, why were they doing it? They knew it because they knew that you know if this guy dies, it's nothing nothing's going to happen to us. Right. Nothing's going to happen. I mean, this, this, this was not again, as I had written at this point of time. Sometimes, you know, something happens in a flash. You know, you think the guy has a gun. You shoot. You do something. This is something going on for eight and a half minutes. You're slowly killing this guy. This guy is saying, I'm dying. Please don't do this. Please don't do this. Sir. There are three other police who are standing there more concerned at the other people than this guy who's dying there. I mean, this... This is a classic example, similar to the case in India, where this guy in three days, they sodomized. And I saw today that it was not just four people. There were 17 policemen who were part of this. So this, 
both of these it's not just the people present there it's the it's what is going through their mind the fact that they know that they can get away with it i'm pretty sure the george floyd four guys won't get away with it given the current political climate they're they're going for 50 years at this point of time the the main that i forgot what his name was who's actually putting the knee on his uh, neck he is going for life the other guys are also going for at least 10 in this day and age in the right. us there's no other way that you know if if god forbid something else happens there will be there will be a, let, let's just say i don't even want to go there what will happen if, if these guys get away scot free i don't think it's going to happen but let's see but the fact that we're even discussing this you know if they were if these guys were not in in police uniform and you saw four civilians uh, one civilian choking a guy for eight and a half minutes and three civilians standing around looking out and letting other people not come there then we wouldn't be even having this conversation they might get away that would never happen we know if they were doing it in broad daylight in the street for eight and a half minutes then we goddamn sure that these guys are going down the very fact that we are even saying that i don't think they're going to get away with this this time tells you what the main problem is that countries across the world and this is especially true in the us and certainly true in india is that people in police and again when the moment people say this they say you're attacking the police no we're not attacking the police i was the last person who would say defund the police truly of course any democratic country needs a police force any police force also needs certain level of immunity to operate that is also true but what that certain level is that is that is the important thing what that certain level thing is and, and wh- what are they allowed to do and what are they not allowed to do that the scope has to be restricted the scope of absolute immunity has to be restricted these things are important and i just hope that these horrific deaths in tamil nadu open up the question of police brutality all of us know that indian policemen and this might be you know this is again this was in i think it's in chennai i'm not know i don't know which city neither the name escapes me i don't know it's, it's near thoothukudi okay but you know if you go to villages this is even more prevalent i mean even the cities they're sometimes worried about you know nobody knows who's with which media somebody will come up but and you know i know in bengal you you go 50 miles away from calcutta and it's just just the cops can do whatever they want I mean, there's nothing there that prevents them. I mean, we don't even hear these things. So I'm pretty sure you know incidents like this happen all the time. It's just that this one you know came into prominence, and I hope something happens. I hope that those cops not only go to jail for the rest of their lives, um, but you know the 17 guy, other guys, they also also pay for what they did. Okay. but at the most uh, even if let's say you know best case scenario uh, in, in india those police people are dismissed i think they have been transferred which is the standard uh, mo uh, they are just you know you're not addressing the the root cause so I, I, honestly i don't have any hope that this will bring about uh, any systemic change at least in india well that's the thing transferring a, a transfer is You see, in no other job will you get transferred if you if you sodomize a human being exactly. so that he dies, right? There's no other job 
in the universe in which your only penalty for that would be a transfer. And if you say, and there is no way you can argue in front of me and say that the right to sodomize a human being for the purpose of enforcement of law is something which is perfectly acceptable. I challenge anybody to come and tell me that. So this person, no matter what he is, the, the, the punishment isn't being transferred. The punishment is to be locked up in a cage without all his life with the key taken away. That is the, that is the punishment. The punishment is the punishment that any other human being would get for sodomizing another human being at the very minimum. If anything, this guy should get more because he's using the power of his uniform. He's using the temporary immunity afforded. So if, if somebody, for instance, um, you cannot fight back against a cop, that itself is an offense. So a policeman has a lot of immunity even at the moment. So if anything, is his punishment should be more than what it should be for a civilian. But at least in this case, it should be the same as that of a civilian. And I'm pretty sure nobody can argue that you know if, if this is what you have done, the only thing that you get is being transferred to another place. Right. I'd just like to call out or one losing your though. job or losing your job. This is you, 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 you lose your job. You lose your job for watching porn on the job. Okay. That's, that's what right. you lose your job. for. If you murder someone, you don't lose your job. Yes. You definitely lose your job. You lose your freedom also. So no, I don't think this losing job or getting transferred, which is personally even worse, which just means you go to another place and do it now. Um, <laughs> none of these are is any solutions for this. And, and I know this is Absolutely. exactly what happens in India. They, they are, people at cops are transferred they, till the news cycle dies down and people go away with something else and everything is forgotten. And the reason why cops are transferred is also because the guys who are above them also have done something like this. So this thing, Baba, ye toh, people don't understand ye policing hai. Otherwise, I'm policing kaise karenge. But th- that is the problem. You know, if this is the way you're going to do policing, then this is a police state. There has the police. I, as I said, the police needs to have some level of immunity. That's true. But not to this level. You cannot argue. I think no sensible person can say that, you know, sodomy and, you know, beating somebody for three days uh, for not giving you a free cell phone or whatever it is for anything is uh, justified. And is, this is the reason why police should have immunity. Anyways, moving to the last topic. And how many minutes have you gone so far? Uh, because this is going to take some time. That's okay. We are back after two weeks. So let's we're back after two weeks. So we're the... doing a little bit of a makeup here. So um, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about was, uh, again, this was very much has been, uh, has been um, very much in the news recently, is nepotism. And I've, I think my first podcast episode of the second, I, I said that. Yes, exactly. I was trying to find the which one. It was in the single digits. Yes. So I had said that for me, I'll repeat what I said then. Um, nepotism is just you getting shocked at somebody else's privilege. That's all. That's that's all that it is. If you're listening to this podcast, and if you are, uh, you know, the fact that you're able to listen to a podcast and have time enough and have the education enough and have reached that place in life where you have the leisure time to listen to podcasts. It means you have had a certain amount of privilege that has come automatically to you by virtue of your birth and your location. And the fact that you reached where you have is because you have been able to use that circle, whether you have done it explicitly 
or whether you have done it implicitly, and I obviously am including myself in it, is you've all, all, all benefited from some amount of quote unquote nepotism. So for me, nepotism per se is you cannot point to somebody else and say nepotism. You're also a beneficiary of nepotism. And rather than using the word nepotism, let's just use the word privilege. So sure, Karan Johar, if you look at his, if you read his autobiography as the suitable boy, um, he was a rich, you know, his dad was a producer. Um, his persistent complaint in that book is that his dad's movies never did great, but so they didn't have a very lavish life, so they could only afford you know, a foreign vacation once a year. And his his father's export-import business basically supported his losses in his movie industry. So it was never really terrible, but all his movies basically bombed, including Agnipa. Now, for most of us who are reading this, this sounds to be hilarious in terms of his, in terms of his very tough upbringing in that you only got one foreign vacation of but trust me, if 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 you go and talk to somebody who 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 lives in a chawl and you talk about your life, that's exactly what that person will think about. Or oh, today the AC broke down. Today I had to. So if 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 this is what you're going to say, then that's exactly what that guy is going to think about you. He's not going to going to say it in the exact way we don't. But but that's really a privilege talking. So I don't think that that per se is a, is is that in itself is a problem. So again, because he was well connected. Uh, Aditya Chopra took him as an assistant director for Kuch Kuch Hota Hai. Uh, he was not particularly good for anything else, so that he became the costume designer. And then once he was a costume designer, he, he made friends with Kajol and Shahrukh Khan. And Kajol and Shahrukh Khan said, if you ever make a movie, we, we, will, we will support you. And so when he made Kuch Kuch Hota Hai, those two guys came on, he got Rani Mukherjee. And that's it. And that's how he established himself. So from his perspective, he thinks he struggled. Just like I think I struggled, just like most of you, no, no, nobody will accept that they had the, that they were, are the beneficiaries of privilege. All of us like to think that we struggle and we do struggle. We do struggle to an extent, but it's a question of that Einsteinian frame of reference. In our frame of reference, we are struggling. For somebody in another frame of reference, we are not. So it's the same thing with privilege. So when people are talking about the Karan Johar or Sonakshi Sena or Sonam Kapoor, of course, they, these guys have, are there because of, but they don't see it that way. Just like we don't see it that way. I mean, I, I, am, I, I did my PhD. I, at one point of time, I had the opportunity to, the reason why I did not go into economics was I did not want to use uh, the privilege of my father's circle to get ahead in life. And that point, that was my, rebellion against my parents. I just felt that I, it wasn't the principal stance so much as I didn't want my parents to control my life moving forward. I wanted, I had enough of parental control over my life. I felt I was, I wanted to go to a place where my parents wouldn't even understand what I'm doing. So there would be no notion of having control. So that's how I basically chucked the privilege and decided to do things myself. It wasn't a principal stance by the way. So, but I'll still say that I grew up in a place, my privilege was that, you know, I am you know, where I am in terms of writing books and stuff. Of course, much of it is because of the upbringing that I had naturally. My, 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 my family, there was a lot of books available. Uh, my dad used to talk about books, we used to discuss these things. So obviously, I grew up in a place that was part of my upbringing that allowed me to grow up and become an author later on in life. 
so just like that you know if you grow up in uh, a, a you know a, a kapoor khandan where everybody is doing movies and of course you will imbibe that and that becomes naturality if you grow up in uh, in the gandhi nehru family you think that you are born to rule because everybody you know everybody rules so everybody has a freaking stadium named after him i mean rahul sanjay gandhi never ruled anything has a gazillion number of things named <laughs> after him he thinks you know, if i am born in this place as 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 uh, priyanka gandhi said i am you know who who am i you know heisenberg type you know i am the one who knocks i am the one who has gandhi by my as my name you know, it's it's a spontaneous thing it's like just because if you say i'll say i am a human being just like that it's i'm i'm sonia gandhi's daughter just on a side note though i don't know if you see saw this hilarious uh, tweet by uh, sonam kapoor who wished uh, karishma kapoor for paving the way for the kapoor girls i'm sure both karishma and karina don't consider uh, sonam kapoor to be one of the kapoor quote and quote kapoor girls <laughs> so again so for me that's you know privilege is always bad when it's not you i'm not particularly but what to me is what to me is a problem is deplatforming those those are two different things one is using what you have to get ahead all of us do that and a lot lot of it is our bringing in where and where we were fortunate enough to be born it's good to recognize it it's good to not claim that you know that is something inherently great about me which is why i won the genetic lottery uh you know that's that's your humility but this is the second thing is the deplatforming part and that is the sushant singh rajput part so that is the part where people it's not just people getting ahead using their contacts which is okay in my mind it is blocking other people from getting ahead now you can say that one automatically entails the other given that there's only a limited number of resources but no that's not always true that might be true if in a corporate environment where there are only few open roles but in movies there is no reason why i mean that that again it's human nature to want to in you know have control there is no reason why um certain people should always get the opportunity over other people it's not that they need it also only in india you will find so many movies being done look at how many movies tom hanks has done in his life and let's take an example of how many movies shahrukh khan has done in his life and you will see the problem there the sheer number of movies that the top heroes in india do over their lifetime there is room for other people they don't need to do all of that and much of that so it's not it's not how they came in that's my problem it's once what they do once they're there that's the problem the fact is that they they behave exactly like some of the some of the stories that come out you know of people being blacklisted because they didn't do they wore a chappal in front of so and so star when they were not sufficiently subservient to that person you know that kind of story is the main issue the fact that some people in this industry in in and this is particularly true of the way uh, bollywood has always worked and that some particular people are able to uh, use their influence to deplatform consistently deplatform others and all it takes is to make a phone call and this 
power asymmetry, that extreme power asymmetry that exists, wherein movie stars are considered to be indispensable and playback singers, script writers, directors, everybody else is considered to be mittiki dhul in front of them. The fact that a star can come tomorrow and say, Sonunikam has sung this song. And everybody was a yes, sir. This kind of script, yes, I am not in the mood to drama romance That's exactly what even if you've read Stardust, that's exactly what stars used to do. You know, stars wouldn't show up on sets, they would say, and people would accept it. And why do people accept it? And this is where you come into the picture. It's because you, you as the audience, and I include myself in it, we support this business. We support a business where the only thing that matters is bhai ka picture lagai, ya Shahrukh ka picture lagai, ya Amir ka picture lagai. It's got nothing to do what the movie is about, who's the director, who, it, and nothing else matters. It is again, it is, it come, kind of comes back to the whole cop thing. It is this enormous amount of power which is de- which is given to this set of people. And obviously they will misuse. Again, it's not a question of the person. It's you are giving that person power without any accountability and without any source of redress. This is exactly what will happen. That that person will abuse their power. This is human nature. This is not a function of an individual. This is not one rotten apple. This is what, how human beings behave when you give them power without check. That's why autocracies, mind you, most communist countries are autocracies. That's what it leads to. That's what leads to Stalin. By the way, there's an excellent movie on Netflix called Death of Stalin, which I absolutely urge you to see if you haven't seen it. It's a brilliant comedy. Uh, based on true stories as to what happens when Stalin dies. And, you know, any resemblance to uh, Indian politics is purely coincidental, by the way, if you, if, you, if you see that. It's just hilarious and pathetic. And if you know the history of Russia, you will know that, of course, some of it is dramatization, but most of it isn't. That actually, some of the, and all the characters there are real people. So... None of none of the characters are fake just for the sake of it. And you use the word hilarious. It is hilarious. So Stalin dies and all his psychophants then decide to make a play for the throne. And of course, each of them are preventing the other guy and all of them are equally unlikable and all of them have. So it's really, really fun. It's like, and um, the, you, you have to see it. It's, 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 it's brilliant. And it's, of course, the, all the actors are just, a grade there. It's like everybody is like a top grade actor. So acting wise, it's like a master class. Uh, must... There is a Facebook group. Uh, you want, you might want to sign up for Sambit Patra for uh, Dr. Sambit Patra for PM. Yeah, I had tweeted that. I had right. tweeted so, that. If... Right. You, you were the one to who. Yes, I tweeted that and I just brought it to the attention of uh, Amit Shah and uh, Amit oh, Shah right. and uh, Yogi Adityanath. Are they aware of this? <laughs> I, I, on Facebook, it said submit to Samvit Patra. This is <laughs> I I had never I had not known that you know this that 
I don't know, 16,000 people or something are a member of this group. That at least there are 16,000 <laughs> people in India who are thinking this. This was, again, a surprise and shows that COVID might have gotten into brains a long time ago. Anyways, <laughs> um, so the final thing that I wanted to talk about is nepotism. Not, I don't like the word nepotism because I just, let's call it for what it is, privilege. Let's talk about deplatforming. Let's talk about that. So I had written this kind of thread on, uh, and many people had retweeted it. I think Free Press Journal also like took uh, me, Sanjeev Sanals, and Amish Tripathi's threads on Indian publishing. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about Indian publishing before we conclude for today, in the context of, uh, in the context of, let's say, circles of privilege. I don't like the word nepotism at all. Nepotism for me is just like. You have an authority to hire someone or do something with a very limited resource. That is nepotism. Um, but using your privilege for me, uh, that's not nepotism at all. So let's, let's use the word in its, in its proper context. Words do matter. So what I was saying in that, in that thread was that in Indian publishing, it was your know, 10 10 or 15 years ago, it was a very different, I mean, so the overall conversation was that the Indian publishing circle is of course, as much um, of, you know, whether you get published or not, or the way that publishers treat you is of course a function of your privilege, like everything else. So again, this is not confined to, uh, you know, movies or, or corporate world. This is everywhere. You know, your privilege is, your privilege is really your, uh, you know, the, the, the capital that you have, which doesn't have the face of Mahatma Gandhi on it, but it's equivalent to it. It is basically uh, something which you are given when you're born. You're given these amount of funny money to end cash throughout your life. And some people get, Ambani's son gets a lot of it. Most of us get some of it. And there are many, many unfortunate people who don't get none of it, who don't get any of it, that is. So, that's a fact of life and um, be happy with what you have. But talking about Indian publishing. So what caught attention and I, for those of you who don't read my tweets, so this, you can find this in my tweets, but I'll, I'll say it a little bit more. So um, when I started off publishing, when I started off writing, sorry, not publishing, you know, Indian publishing was kind of a very different beast in those days. So most of the Indian publishers, most of, most of the, quote unquote, Indian publishers were all basically foreign publishers in India, like Penguin, HarperCollins, um, Hachette. Hachette came a little late, but other than Rupa, none of these, all of these were international. Uh, all of these were, were, were all like multinational, international publishing houses who had their India sections. And most of their money basically came from selling some of their legacy titles. So there were the classics, there were... Uh, you know, classics, dictionaries, HarperCollins dictionaries, there were atlases, there were encyclopedias, there were like big picture books. And obviously you can realize that all of them have now been made redundant by the internet. So all of these things which were big, big, and, and everybody had one, like everybody had to buy dictionaries, everybody had an atlas at home, everybody. So it was like, a, you know, you were, you were assured of a certain amount of sales and it was there was really nothing that there was there was no need for advertisement there was no no need for them you didn't need to you didn't need to advertise an atlas for instance or you didn't need to advertise different kinds of textbooks textbooks still sell but again the focus has i'm coming to that so the the the, the point i'm trying to make is most indian publishers were awash in cash 
they were awash. And the thing about running a business is not so much about the cash, you know, the life that you have in any company. And this I realized after working in the corporate world for a few years is not so much the exact total sum total of the money you have in hand, but the sum total of the money you're assured of having in your hand next year. That's how you can spend money. That's how your experience of the corporate life. And so if you have a, in, if you're in a company which makes a lot of sales and then doesn't know whether it's going to make a lot of sales next year, there's not going to be a lot of company events and parties. But if you have a place where there is a steady source of income coming regardless, then your life is pretty cool at that point of time. So publishing houses were like that. They knew that there was a steady state, steady flow of income that are going to come from their legacy titles. And so the business part of that, there was basically no business. Uh, there was no reason to make money, make new money. So that money was enough to sustain their lifestyle, which was a lifestyle of extreme privilege, uh, very, very nice parties. Um, and each of the editors in a, in a publishing house are almost like independent they're almost independent units. And the way you get ahead, again, since it was not a revenue-driven culture, it wasn't that this editor gave me a hit and this editor gave me a flop. That's not really what people were even like to understand. These are very liberal uh, companies. So, you know, money is both a good thing as well as a bad thing. So the guy who got the booker, the guy who got the booker was the star. So every editor, um, they wanted to have a set of authors who they believed had a chance of winning the Booker Prize. And of course, I'm being facetious. Obviously, not everybody was going to win a Booker Prize, but people who they felt were literary enough to, you know, Tejpal, for instance, um, who could win a Booker Prize, who could write something which was that profound. And of course, it was obviously a matter of judgment. I wouldn't have said that about Tejpal at any point of time, but some people definitely felt that way. And of course, and in many people um, who don't read literary or we might disagree with me is that writing literary fiction is about as formulaic as writing a teenage love story. There are certain things you need to check out. Check, 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 check. If you put it there, people will say, yeah, to literary hai, boss, ye kya hai? of course, they don't say it like that um, in literary cycles. Uh, circles, but so this was really what the Indian publishing industry was. Every editor was focused on finding the next uh, Tarun Tejpal, and obviously their search for the next Tarun Tejpal was driven by the privilege of whoever they were searching for. So it, obviously it was not a very wide circle. So they were looking at you know people who were in the Miranda houses of the world or in Dune schools or uh, let's say IS officers, Upamanyu Chatterjee, for instance. So again, so you would see that the, the, the places they were coming from, all of them were also coming from you know, positions of extreme privilege. And around 2010, you know, this was the time when Chetan Bhagat had kind of revolutionized um, Indian publishing by bringing into it things like, like marketing plans. And of course, the India, in, initially, the, the publishing houses were very derisive. If you ever read that uh, Ankita Mukherjee article on uh, Chetan Bhagat, you know, it's, it's, it's very like, you know, this guy actually sent a marketing plan. I can't believe what a, what a gas bag he is. And that was because the, because of the fetishization of you know, poverty. <laughs> and even though they were awash with cash, they felt that anybody who wanted to make money was the fact that he wanted to make money just kind of um, took away whatever charm that that person had as an author. It's like Dr. Nefi's monkey hair kind of thing.
Um, so, but but by that time, the Chetan, like when I came on to writing, the Chetan revolution had kind of started already. So there were some, uh, you know, chief editors or perhaps the head of the business who were asking that, okay, thora kam ho hai sales because internet are we are getting some, you know, some decline in revenue. So let's do this. Let's go for your Booker Bates, but let's get some um, other authors who are not going to win you Booker but who you don't like mind sitting next to. Okay. So let's get some of these, you know, second string guys, which is when I came in um, <laughs> and, 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 and let's get them to sell an insane number of copies and let their sales and their revenue drive our search for the next booker. So, you know, my events uh, in, in, in those days in 2010, there was like, they, they would take you out as, you know, the editor would take you out, for drinks to Cuba, which is you know, in Connaught Place, a very nice place. It's not a five-star hotel though, but they would take you out to drinks there once if you went there. And they would do an event in India, Habitat Center, where there would be like pastries. And then in Calcutta, they would do something with Shondesh. But then if you, ha- and this was for authors like me and the uh, publisher had enough cash to pay for this. This was considered part of their marketing budget. And but for the for the Tejpals of the world, it was a totally different thing. It was like five star hotel, five six cities tours, best places, you know, very very exclusive guest list. It doesn't matter whether they sold books or not. Okay, it obviously didn't sell any books at the, you know, two hundred rupee books. I mean, how many would you sell to cover even one drink? But it was not considered to be a problem because what you were doing was you were, let's say expanding your network of privilege at that point of time. Then of course, things started getting increasingly worse because the internet started taking away all their legacy book titles. So now nobody needed any encyclopedias. Nobody needed any atlases. Nobody needed any dictionaries. Uh, Stack exchange killed a lot of <laughs> the, the, the other stuff that people used to buy books for. So most of their, you know, most of their titles just died there. And like with, you know, PDFs of classics floating around. Uh, nobody, nobody needs to buy Tom Sawyer from Penguin Classics anymore. You can just go on the line online and get it. So the kind of books that we used to spend on when we were kids, nobody buys those books anymore. So, you know, that thing totally died out. So at that point of time, uh, they still, you know, all that they did was they started squeezing their, that other list of authors even more. And then in order to, they started imprints, which are like kind of not really our company, but it's still our company kind of things so that they could publish, you know, I, I, I love you and I love your sister kind of books. <laughs> um, uh, so they started publishing you know, that kind of books under these uh, imprints, which again, again, there were low margin books. Um, and increasingly what happened was an author for a, a sale of a book. Um, if he, if he's, if he's a very successful author, he will get 10 to 12% of the sale of one book. Imagine that this is a successful author. I know it shocked me when you mentioned that. Uh, a beginning author, a beginner author will get 7.5%. So when I started out, I my first book, Mihap, uh, was 7.5%. Later books were all 10 and above. Um, this was this was what I was, and you know, my last two books had fairly, I mean, last book had a fairly decent advance for 
the kind of market that I sell to. Um, so what I'm telling you is the, is really the top things are even worse. There are people who don't, who get even I've heard 5% of revenue from a single sale of a book. So you have to understand that when you're writing a book, you're basically doing it for free. Essentially it's for free. Um, so the only way you can make money is to sell a shitload of your books in order to make something out of that 5% and 10% to be even worth somewhat worth your time. And most authors in India, even the very, very successful authors that you see their money, their, their full-time lifestyle does not come from the sales of their books. It comes from the incidentals that follow from the fame that you get by writing books, whether it be, be moderating a dance reality show or going to colleges and judging fashion shows or speaking at different corporate events. This is what brings in the money. It's not the books. And increasingly what happened is that the publishers expected um, the authors to do the publicity themselves. That is not just do. I mean, that obviously all authors do their publicity, but they wanted the authors to pay for their publicity. They wanted professional PRs. Initially, PR was supposed to be the, you know, that's why you're giving 90% of your revenue, right? You're doing it because you're basically buying something from these guys and you, you, you hope that you're buying their public relations or whatever they do. But increasingly what happened is because they were publishing so many books in order to keep afloat, there was just not enough bandwidth given to individual authors. And even when there was bandwidth given, it was given to those who were booker worthy. So people who were not considered booker worthy were in Sarakchap So the expectation was that these people are supposed to be just giving them our you're giving them a dabba to put on their books. This publisher has published it. After that, it's you. And this was again, for me, this was not a model that I could buy. This was not, this was not the way I, I want to do publishing. Okay, I'm not writing a book to buy your stamp on my book. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm not that desperate. So, my book sells on its own. My book sells because of me or whatever it's in the book. It doesn't sell because of your stamp on it. And I'm not going to pay 90% of my book revenue for that stamp. I expect that you will do something. And of course they do something. The 90% isn't just for the stamp. They print it, which costs money. They distribute it, which costs money. And they do some kind of editing, which again, I wouldn't say is great in India, um, but it's okay. They do some kind of line editing. So you do pay something, but it's still a lot. I mean, if you did it yourself, um, of course, the, and that's the main problem is that authors cannot run their own book distributions. Like it doesn't scale. There's an economy of scale. So every author can't do their own book distribution. Some of the bigger authors nowadays have actually doing this um, increasingly because, because of the, because of the pathetic way that most Indian publishers do it. But with the point increasingly became that Indian publishers only dealt with people who were booker worthy and who came from this, these circles of privilege. And they're, they're very different circles of privilege than what we can imagine. It's usually celebrities. So you'll see a slew of celebrity books that come out nowadays, whether it be Karan Johar, Rishi Kapoor, you know, you don't have to be a very big celebrity. It's either celebrities or 
like industrialist passion projects, which are very well funded by the industrialists themselves. Um, so nowadays, publishing in India, unfortunately, has become essentially a you know a, you encash your privilege. Really, again, there's nothing wrong in it per se, but that's just the way it is. Or you are a booker, or you are somebody they consider worthy of winning a booker, or if you are somebody who are not, who is neither of them, like me, then you are expected to basically uh, give give them ninety percent of their revenue, whatever you make, and then pay for your own public relations. And it's not just public relations now. What's happened is with bookstores closing, you know, people just don't go to bookstores anymore. Authors are expected to buy shelf space for their books, like in order for the in order for the bookstore to display your book, they are selling the you know the the privilege to be on that shelf at this point of time. So at this point of time, you basically either have your privilege or you buy it. And again, this is not something which only I have said. I think some other people have also said this at this point of time. So this is what makes you know Indian publishing at this point of time. And one thing that I haven't mentioned is, of course, their absolute absolute political politics that goes on in terms of not just talking yeah. about like human politics and just talking about right wing, left wing, Modi, all that politics that goes on there. Um, you know, that deplatforming thing is very much there. Add to this, add to this, all of it, you know, even some, even in a political author will get into trouble if, you know, with all of these things, you know, if you consider it to be political and that too on the wrong side of their political, on their political line, then trust me, you know, Shit just hit the fan. It just hit the fan, broke through the ceiling, and went to the roof at this point of time. So, yeah, that's it. I think we've. This has been a rather long podcast episode, but I just want to talk about this um, uh, because I, I, with with all this talk of privilege, there's uh, nepotism again, a word that I hate. Um, we have to understand the difference between nepotism, privilege, which all of us have to an extent deplatforming which is the problematic which is where the outrage should be and of course what indian publishing has become this is more a private rant but for those of you who are interested in the way publishing works um i think this might be um illuminative okay that's that's enough for today thanks yep. a lot for listening yeah and that's the podcast for today and uh, we hope it made up for the two week break and since it's been a while, let me also remind you again about what else, but uh, Arnab's Patreon page. And that's the best way to let him know that you value his content. So head over to uh, patreon.com slash great Trust me, even if you're not intending to contribute, just reading what Arnab's written there, it's hilarious that three tiers he has. It's always good for a good chuckle. And uh, another good way to uh, promote this or to help Arnab is to... Uh, promote this podcast, give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or uh, wherever you're listening to it. Trust me, it really helps. And uh, share it with uh, you know people you like, people you hate on Facebook, Twitter, and even those uh, really annoying WhatsApp groups. And uh, yeah, be a champion for this podcast and help, help get the word out. So we hope to see you next week with hopefully what would be a very special episode, but uh, lips are sealed for now, right, Arnab? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, see you next week. And until then, take care. Bye.